morning, everybody, and welcome to Draycott Diaries documentaries. This strand that we're running at the moment, re-COVID, where we're talking to various members of the community and indeed the outreach of this community, which is why I'm really lucky this morning to be talking to Peter Bright, who is in Westbury, Submendip. Peter, I think it would be easier if you would be kind enough, first of all, to say hello and tell us a little bit about what your title, if anything, might be. Right. Well, hello there. I think of myself, I think, as a retired biology teacher with a long and uh, varied set of experiences as a natural historian. That sounds some pretty heady stuff, in which case you are just the man that Draycott Dara's documentaries need, because I know we have a short amount of time, but there are a couple of questions that not only are running through my head, but I know they're questions that people often ask me or talk about when we're out on our walks up on the hill, for example. Are the birds during COVID singing louder? Well, I don't think that they are singing any louder, partly because it's a difficult thing to measure how loud a bird is singing. So what I think is going on is that because there's less traffic, because we're being quieter, so how things could be quieter than where I live in the, up in the countryside behind Westbury Submendip, I don't know. But I think it's to do with less other sound, which means that we can actually notice the birds singing more. So it's to do with our ability to actually notice it rather than that the birds themselves are singing any louder. Very good. That makes perfect sense. So are you saying then that our own senses... Uh, possibly because we're at home more in our gardens more and that it is quieter, that our own senses are kind of pitching into the birdsong rather than the birdsong being louder. Would that be a fair assessment? Uh, I think that's probably just right in that partly is that we can switch the sensitivity of our ears up and down and when it is quiet we switch it up and because we're at home a lot we're paying attention to the birdsong so we're actually noticing birdsong uh, in ways that our busy lives before prevented happening. And I also hope, Peter, as a resident of, of Draycott and a great lover of wildlife, that those who have keyed into it will understand a little bit more about the fantastic nature that surrounds us and in this awful time that nature is is still going on and what an amazing support that has been to us in our lower times. There's another extraordinary thing that happens or is happening at exactly the same time and I wondered whether there was any comparisons or parallels to the fact that I will ask you first of all we seem to be in one of the hottest Mays on record is that, first of all, am I correct, is this the hottest May known on record? I don't know about uh, the hottest on record, but I think it's unequivocally been the sunniest on record, uh, especially if the uh, electricity generation from my photovoltaic panels is anything to go by. It is far and away the sunniest May that we have had. And, of course, it's been dry and it has been warm as well. But whether it has been the warmest over the last hundred years or not, I don't know. Will somebody be able to make that measurement at some point? I'm sure that measurement is available and probably uh, suitable chasing around the Internet would get the uh, 
average maximum temperatures for maize, you know, going back to 1950, 1940. I'm not quite sure when proper records were begun. Okay, well, let's talk about the effect that it's having on flora and fauna. You and I had the, well, a joyous chat a couple of evenings ago on the phone, and you were telling me some some interesting facts that were happening to the animals, the wild animals that surround us. I mean, obviously, we can't go through every single one of them, but we did talk about the fact that the earthworm, for example, voles and moles and animals that live in the ground, uh, the ground is so hard at the moment that animals like badgers, for example, who rely on earthworms as a as a feeding source, and particularly at this time of the year when a lot of them have, have young badgers which are beginning to explore. Am I right that they are really in quite dire need at the moment? And owls as well, I believe, because they they're not able to get voles and stuff. Could you tell us a little bit more about that? Well, I mean, I think badgers, which are traditionally anyway earthworm feeders, need the earthworms to be coming up onto the surface of the soil at night when they can be caught and eaten. And because the ground is dry at the moment, the earthworms go way below the ground and out of reach of the badgers. And I think this is going to mean that the badgers will then roam and be looking for alternative food sources like our vegetable patches, Or indeed, if there are people watering their lawns, I think they'll find that badgers will come and pick up the earthworms off them as well. And the same sort of thing would apply if the lack of grass growth affects the ability of voles and mice to uh, breed and produce large numbers, which is what feeds the kestrels and buzzards and tawny owls that are part of the the wildlife scene uh, on the edge of the Mendips here. Well, that's one animal that's been affected. And we did also touch, didn't we, on, um, you know, on my walks, I'm always aware of the Duponds on the top of the hill, which have recently um, amazing voluntarily been recreated to how they were in their early their early lives. And particularly they are habitat to newts. What happens if this drought, so to speak, continues and the water levels drop so low what happens to the animals that are living in, in that type of water? Will they dry out? Will they go down into the mud? Or will they pack their rucksack and, and move on? Well, I think probably it depends upon which animals you talk about. But if there are pond snails in there, I would suspect they will end up dozing in the uh, dried mud at the bottom, waiting for it to start raining again. But I think the newts and toads and frogs that may be using these ponds will actually uh, walk away and wander off from the pond and find places where there is a little bit of moisture because they spend most of their year actually wandering our gardens and hedgerows and fields and so on and therefore they will have wandered away from the pond if it dries up and of course will return return to the pond to breed next year the frogs will reappear in February. What sort of distances will they be travelling? The story is that uh, newts may well be able to get, we'll be travelling 250 metres or so from the ponds in which they were reared. And therefore, if you have a network of ponds that are within 250 metres of each other, there is the possibility that uh, the newts will actually be able to 
breed in one pond and maybe breed in a different one, and therefore the populations mix up, which will be good for their uh, genetic diversity. Absolutely, for the bloodline. Well, that's quite a distance for a very small animal, isn't it, to travel? Uh, it is, especially if you think of all the potential obstacles that there might be in the way. Uh, I picture them actually wandering, you know, in a vaguely perhaps straight line, but uh, wandering and finding it by accident rather than setting off with the compass and heading straight for the uh, next pond. I think that's a lesson to us all. Be bewaring of wanderings underneath our in, underneath our feet. Obviously, there is. It is such a massive subject that you have been kind enough to say in the autumn you will come back and talk to the main series Draycott Diaries a little bit more about the the whole kind of biodiversity of the area that we live in. But before we end this shorter segment for the documentary series, would you just Give me any thoughts on, and it may be that there are none at all. Today, we are in the middle of COVID. It does look things are loosening slightly, but we are still in the middle of a pandemic. From your point of view, with the knowledge that you have, have you noticed any immediate effect on our surroundings? Or will we only ever be able to make a judgment if there has been any impact on the well, the whole kind of conservation on the quality of air, is that only something that we will know about in the future? I think one um, immediate effect is that groups of conservation volunteers who are managing scrub encroachment on various reserves or indeed perhaps uh, restoring more ponds to, so that they can hold water for newts and frogs and so on, that conservation activity has stopped at the moment because of COVID. In other words, the effects of COVID are more to do with what we can do or what we can't do. And quite clearly, what we have been doing is lots in our gardens. And some of what we've done will be good for the wildlife. And perhaps some of what we've done may not be. Uh, that uh, remains to be seen. Well, Peter, it does remain to be seen. And these are unprecedented times that we're in. And really who knows but for the moment I'm and I, it is only the moment I can't wait to come back and talk to you at length later in the year but may I thank you on behalf of Draycott Daris and the community and everybody who's involved in conservation all the volunteers and especially yourself Peter for taking the time today thank you thank you you've just been listening to Draycott Daris documentaries Recorded by myself, Tiki Trethowan. The editor was Rob Elliott, and music was arranged by Hugh Trethowan. Mm-hmm.